I thought that they would be more sensible. I really didn't think that they would be as incompetent and, 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 and handle it as poorly as they have. I thought that having lost this referendum, they would at least work with the EU to try and rescue, the, you know, rescue what we could from it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Chris Kendall, EU official and host of the wonderfully informative Cake Watch podcast, was my guest on today's show. Cake Watch is aimed at combating the British exceptionalism and misconceptions held by both Remainers and Brexiteers during the Brexit debate. In this discussion, we get into the concept of cakeism, the reforms that both Britain and Europe might undertake post-Brexit, and the concepts of federalism and subsidiarity, and much, much more. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Chris Kendall. But uh, yeah, so Chris, uh, okay. it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I came across uh, Cakeism as a podcast and a concept, uh, must have been just, a, just three or four months ago. And uh, it really jumped out at me as like just, just a fantastic name for a podcast just <laughs> about Brexit, just straight up. I, I chuckled a little bit. But like, wh- when you explain exactly what, what you mean by, by Cakeism, well, um, so my background is that I'm, I'm um, an EU official. I work for the EU. I have done for um, over, over um, well over 20 years now, actually. Uh, 25 years. Gosh, wow. And um, I was always really passionate about the EU. Um, back in the 80s, it was the thing that radicalized me under Thatcher um, more than anything else, really, was, was when she started um, becoming highly critical of the EU. Um, that was what really kind of mobilized me against her. So I wanted to go and work for the EU, which I successfully managed to do. Um, and, you know, having dedicated my entire career to this thing, which I genuinely believe in, I mean, I would call it a vocation rather than a career, um, to see what was then happening in the UK was um, depressing, to put it mildly. And as things progressed and went from bad to worse with the referendum, um, I, you know, I, I couldn't tear my eyes away from it. I was rubbernecking it the whole way. And um, I got increasingly frustrated by the tendency um, in, in, in British discussion to, to focus solely on what was going on in the UK and even more specifically on what was going on in Westminster and really ignoring entirely um, the elephant in the room, which is the EU and the 27 member states. And, and, and I felt that there was a need to bring this perspective into the, into the UK discussion. So um, I thought, well, you know what, let's, why don't we do our own podcast? Why don't I do a podcast? And I was like, who, who can help me out here? My, my pal Steve had uh, both a recording studio and uh, an enormous Twitter following. So he was the obvious candidate for me to, to rope into it, which I proceeded to do. And we, um, and we, so we, we, we launched into this podcast with the idea of really just bringing a Brussels perspective to it um, and, and from the angle of injecting some reality into this discussion from the UK angle. It wasn't just on the leave side that people were being, I thought, hopelessly unrealistic and delusional about what the UK could expect to do. and what we, It was also, also on, the, on, on, on the other side, on the Remain side, people would be like, well, yeah, we could, we'll just cancel it, it'll be fine. Or, you know, we'll just, um, we just need to do a bit of reform of the EU and everything will be fine. And it, it, it got me extremely cross. So cakeism, if you like, is, um, is the shorthand for this, delusional exceptionalist mentality that has always existed and still exists on the UK side. So that's kind of what we wanted to capture it in. I can't, I, mean, I can't remember how we actually came up with, with the term. I think it was because there was so much um, having your cake and eating it going on at the time. Um, one of the most notorious phrases back from 2017, 2016, 2017 was Boris Johnson saying, um, 
I'm pro having your cake and pro eating it. I think it was my policy is pro having cake and pro eating cake. And, you know, just the, the arrogant, glib, flippant way of saying, yeah, yeah, I'm a cakeist. So what? Yeah. You know, I believe in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, of course it's, but when the entire, you know, the entire point of the, of the proverb of the saying is this is not realistic. It's not possible. You can't do these two mutually incompatible things. So, um, so then, I don't know, Cake Watch was the name of the podcast, and, and the logo that we, we came up with is, is really just a, a riff on the old Crime Watch um, logo from the, from, from the BBC. Right. And the idea being, yeah, the idea being that we would be policing this crap. We would be, we would we, on a weekly basis, we would, we would look at this crap and call it out. Um, I mean, in, in, in reality, what's, what's happened is... Um, it hasn't been quite so specific um, um, and organised as that. We've, we've, we've generally talked about the, the, the Brexit themes of the day. And, and, and since the COVID lockdown, we've more or less gone on hiatus with a couple of, um, couple of exceptions. Um, but, um, yeah, that's, that's the general philosophy that we've pursued, is just calling out the, these, these fantastical delusions on the UK side uh, and pointing out from a broad perspective why, quite why these are so unrealistic. Mm. I mean, there was definitely a lot of just fantastical dreaming and thinking from 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 everyone uh, in the in during the campaign. There was very few people attempting to have like a a rational, like nuanced debate about it. It was either the EU is is like the EU SSR, or um, it's it's like this magical, wonderful thing that has no flaws whatsoever. Um, I mean, it's not even that. It's that um, we can fix all the flaws. And we can come back in, and we can be leaders of this, and we can sort it all out. Or um, they'll 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 be longing to have us back as long as we just reverse our our, our opinions. Or um, um, yeah, yeah, we can just we can just join up with the Norwegians, and we'll be in the uh, we'll be in the EEA, and it'll be fine because the EEA, firstly, is is effectively being like an EU member. Uh, you get to have a say over all the legislation, which is completely untrue. You don't. And secondly, the idea that the Norwegians would just be happy to have uh, this large and awkward partner suddenly is rolling up and, and taking over this this organization so on all sorts of levels and you see even, even this past week i've seen it even this past week you've had this absurd to me utterly absurd rumor that biden's going to appoint obama as the uh, u.s ambassador to the uk as some kind of punishment to johnson which is a ridiculous idea and then having having pointed out this ridiculous idea you suddenly get this whole host of remainers coming in and saying oh yeah but that'd be awesome wouldn't it oh wouldn't that be great i'd be really good well, i know it wouldn't firstly it's ridiculous of course they're not going to do that and secondly what kind of message would that be sending to the role of the uk in the world and how important everybody's i mean again utterly exceptionalist utterly delusional this totally unrealistic idea of the uk's role in the world now, John Major made a terrific speech this, this past week where he, pulled, he called this out. He said, listen, this is who we are now. We just need to get used to it. We need to live with that. There's nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed about. It's, perfectly, um, it's a, perfectly, um, a perfectly cromulent thing to be a, a, sort of a, a, a big second-rate power, but you know, be realistic about it and be realistic about our, 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 our goals and our, our capacities and our reach. And having been more realistic about it, that then gives us a pathway to doing what's important, which is looking after our quality of life, looking after our values, doing what countries of our size normally do very well. And we look around at our neighbours and we see them doing it very well. And we're not doing it very well. And this is what drives me, is the idea that if we could only come to terms with the reality, we might actually have a pretty good stab at having a pretty good life as, the, as UK citizens. So, yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, like, has your has your opinion changed on on Brexit at all? Like, uh, it, like you, you kind of hint in there that you, you've you've kind of accepted that we're, this is where we're going. This is this is probably what's going to happen. And uh, as soon as we like face up to the reality of of what our situation is going to be, that we're we're going to you know be able to move forward and figure out what sort of country we want to be post Brexit. Like, have you have you changed your your thoughts on on the idea of leaving the EU generally? Um, no, I mean, my, my notion of the, of, of whether Brexit's a good thing or not. Now, 
I should just preface that by saying that um, in a way I wear, I wear two hats because um, I, I'm both British, I'm born, in, born in the UK and resident in the UK. I, I, I happen also to be a dual national, I'm a German citizen too, but um, I, I mostly identify as British having, having grown up here. Um, and, and European, um, and my European identity is extremely important to me. As, as, as I've mentioned, it's defined my, my career. Um, so that being, that being so, where was I going with this? Um, no, I, I've, I've always thought that Brexit was an absolutely terrible idea. And I still think that, and I have not had the, a moment's doubt on that at all, except insofar as with my EU hat on, I've thought maybe for the EU, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. Sometimes I've thought, you know, it's not a bad thing for the EU, for the UK to take this sort of journey into the wilderness. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the kind of double-hatted bit of it. But um, as, as, as a Brit, as somebody who, who's British and who, who wants the best for this country, no, I've never, never had the moment's doubt that it's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, the only thing that's changed is my, firstly, my, my assessment of where the UK government would take this. I thought that they would be more sensible. I really didn't think that they would be as incompetent and, 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 and handle it as poorly as they have. I thought that having lost this referendum, they would at least work with the EU to try and rescue, the, you know, rescue what we could from it and uh, head down a, a softer, head for a softer landing than we have. On that, you know, I've been constantly disappointed and, and um, so that, that, there's that. Then there's um, acceptance of the fact that we are going to Brexit. Now, uh, I thought that at every step of the way. I always thought it was likely that we would end up leaving, but, I've, but there was a chance that we could stop it. And as long as there was a chance, we should try and do that. Um, that chance disappeared after the general election last year when, when, when Boris Johnson won, won, his, won, won his election. After that, it was obvious that it wasn't going to happen. We were going to leave. Have, you know, that, that changes things in, 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 in certain key ways. It means that the focus has to shift from trying to remain, trying to reverse the, the, the outcome of the referendum, to making the best of what happens afterwards. Um, now, on that, um, my view is that you know, we're going to be out for a long time, that it's going to take a long time for us to build back to a platform for rejoining. Um, and that's, that's, where, that's where we need to be. It needs to be a long-term campaign. And that campaign has to be a, a broad campaign. So on, on one extreme, you're going to have people who are shouting for rejoining. And I, I intend to be one of those people. And there are going to be other people who are, who are saying... You know, incrementally, let's just um, do what we can to be pragmatic and realistic and, and realign ourselves with the EU. And uh, But collectively, we're going to get to a point, um, my view is, we are going to get to a point in, in, in five to ten years' time where we are um, far more aligned with the EU than it currently looks as if we're going to be. Um, and that then provides a platform for ramping up rejoin efforts and i think we're looking sort of 10 15 20 years down the line for that um but that's that's where we are i mean i it's it, i'm that, that's a fight for other people now i think i mean by that point i'll be retired and you know <laughs> but yeah that that's um that, 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 yeah no I, I have not wavered one 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 millimeter from my absolute conviction that brexit is an absolute shit idea I mean, what would you make of the, the, the people who say, you know, like, because this is, this, is, this is an opinion I'm, I'm very, very sort of slowly drifting towards. And one that up until, as you mentioned, actually, up until Boris had won the, uh, the election in 2019, I was still of the opinion that we could get a referendum. I honestly thought that there was a reasonable chance of Corbyn getting in with some sort of coalition and we'd have a referendum and then that would, that would really settle the question. And I... I, I I'm not sure whether people would have would have gone remain if we'd had the chance to vote again because I'm re I, like I I really am not quite sure. I think we might have leaned remain, but I'm not sure it would have settled the question if we'd had a second debate. But since then, um, uh, maybe this is just like my brain trying to be optimistic of, of the situation. But I've been um, reading some critiques of Europe, and and uh, at the minute it looks 
to some people at least, like the leaving Europe may not be the worst idea as it becomes sort of more unstable and difficult to, to govern. Like uh, one of the critiques I, I really buy actually is that um, it's, too, it's become too big and it's especially um, with the euro, it's incredibly difficult to uh, govern like or make fiscal policy for that big um, a, a group of nations. And I, I'm curious as to whether you think that in 10 years that the EU will still be in the same position in terms of like global power, in terms of economic stability, in terms of their uh, just the, the, the state of the, the European Union generally, um, and whether at that point it'll still be worth rejoining for us, or at least worth like asking the question. Well, look, um, this has been a, a recurrent theme um, in UK politics, um, primarily on the Leave side, but, but, but not just on the Leave side. This has been a recurrent theme all the way through, which is that um, the EU is doomed. It's going to fall apart. Um, the euro is going to collapse. It's too big to manage. Um, and at every point, the EU has shown that to be false. I mean, the EU, um, if anything, Brexit has... Uh, re revived uh, a lot of people's passion for, for for European integration and and a lot of people's faith in it as a as a concept. Um, now, um, so I want I want to divorce the the, the, the the two sides. There's a discussion to be had about the EU. I want to keep that entirely separate from the discussion about Brexit. Now. The idea that the, the UK will be better off outside while the EU reforms itself and sorts itself out, I think, is, um, is a good idea for the EU because the EU could do without um, the baneful influence and the baleful influence of the UK during this process. If, if It's a terrible idea for the UK because the UK will then simply be, well, for, for all the reasons that we know, but it, it, it'll be a terrible thing for the UK to be outside the EU. Quite a few now, full stop. It, it's... Um, it's going to suffer economically um, and we're going to go through a very bitter and difficult period in terms of our own political uh, uh, life um, during this period. It's going to be a very difficult period, I think, for the UK. For the EU, um, now I, I've got a lot of opinions on this and um, in a way Brexit has provided me with um, with 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 uh, a break from, from, from thinking about all these things, it's, um, it's been distraction. Um, I happen to be somebody that believes passionately that the EU needs to need, need, needs reform. That doesn't mean I, th I think that it's terminally broken, but I do think that, um, that, that there are, um, very serious things that need to happen for the EU to realize its potential. Um, in the UK discussion, um, and not only in the UK, but, but in the UK discussion, when we talk about reform, when we talk about reform in the EU, generally we're talking about rolling back the powers of the EU. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about making it more intergovernmental as opposed to, um, uh, as, as opposed to giving it some quasi status of a state. Um, that's not the kind of reform that I mean at all. Um, in my view, uh, uh, which I've documented a number of times in, in my blog, um, and, and I've also discussed it on, on, on the podcast a few times, in my view, the problem, the, 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 the number one problem that the EU has is that there is imbalance between its institutions. The European Council and the Council of the European Union, um, not the same thing, but increasingly the same thing, have, um, have, have far too much power. Um, in terms of the interinstitutional dynamics um, of, of, of the European Union. And that um, gravely hampers our capacity to act and to do what needs to be done. So um, the kind of reform that I'm talking about, and this then ties, and ties into the, the whole issue of subsidiarity and, and federalism that, that I think we're going to discuss, the kind of reform that the EU desperately needs is... Um, to weaken the grip of the council um, and to enhance the role of the executive, which is to say the commission, um, and the democratic accountability of that commission 
uh, not to member state governments, but to the people of the EU. So you do that through the parliament, you do that by reform, reforming the council. Um, without going into technical details here, that's basically where I'm coming from. So I am an unabashed and unashamed out there federalist, EU federalist. I believe in a European tier of government. It doesn't mean I believe in, in a European super state. It doesn't mean I believe that the member states should all um, be um, uh, dissolved or denigrated or, or reduced to, to, to um, tick boxes. Um, don't, I don't think that at all. And, and that's, a, that's a misrepresentation of what federalism means and what European integration means. I strongly believe in European diversity and, 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 and in the power of European citizens. What I don't like is the power of EU nation states and member states and national capitals. Um, and I think that that's dangerous to the entire project. And I think we see that um, in a number of ways. We see that, for example, in um, the way that um, outrider governments like, um, like Orban uh, and, and, and Poland can block progress in certain policy areas. Um, I see it on a daily basis in, in the area that I work, which is foreign policy. So I work in the EU's foreign policy branch and that's still intergovernmental for the most part, which means that we can't proceed. We can't make, make we can't do anything without um, unanimity on, the, on of all our member states. So for me, the things started to go wrong with the Maastricht Treaty, which created these three pillars. It created an intergovernmental pillar. And it got worse with the treaties of Nice and Amsterdam, which paved the way for, for, for um, the enlargement, the big enlargement, but didn't do the necessary institutional reform to allow that to be successful. Um, and where we are now is we, with this sort of mammoth um, EU with, with, with 27 member states, um, but with institutions that were established for six and that haven't been reformed to... Um, to, to match our, our expansion. So I, in, in, in the parlance of the 80s and 90s, I was always a deepener, not a widener. I, was, I strongly believed that we should deepen before we widened. But what we did was we widened and then we didn't deepen. And having widened, it becomes very difficult to deepen. So I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily particularly optimistic for, for, for the path of, you know, I, I'm not saying that my, my vision is something that I believe is gonna come to pass, but I think it's something that needs to come to pass. If we don't get it, it doesn't mean that the EU is just simply going to collapse in and upon itself. It just means that we're going to be what we are now. Um, and that is um, still pretty important. Uh, it's an economic superpower, but it's not something that is capable of leveraging its economic superpower status into meaningful um, impact on the global stage uh, in, in non-economic scenarios. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where we will be in 10, 20 years' time, but I don't, I don't necessarily we're going to think we're going to be where I want us to be. At the same time, I don't think, I, I, I don't for a second believe the, 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 these um, uh, visions, these, these uh, nightmare visions of collapse, in, um, of, of creeping incapacity. I think that's wishful thinking on the part of a lot of people who, regret their decision to leave or want to justify their decision to leave i i don't buy it sorry that was a very long answer no that's all right i mean this is what this is what podcasts are for you can give as long an answer as you want to um but, <laughs> yeah so uh you actually you, you segued quite nicely there into the the next thing i wanted to talk to you about which is um the ideas of of subsidiarity and and federalism so and just for people who don't maybe quite grasp what, what federalism is before we start going into it, um, you can correct me if you feel this is a poor definition, but I think just looking at America is, is like an excellent example of, of just a way that federalism might work and that they have their 50 states with a government in each state and they have their um, national government that sets policy and, and, and laws, but then there's like certain laws that can be overridden by state governments and there's certain ones that are set from the top down. Um, and ultimately that also like ties quite nicely into that, the concept of subsidiarity, which is one that the EU was actually founded on. 
Um, but I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure how much they actually adhere to it. Well, you, you can, you can give your thoughts on that if you, mm-hmm. if you'd like, but sub- subsidiarity again, correct me if I'm getting this wrong is essentially the idea that every decision should be taken at the most local level that it can be made. So, um, they shouldn't be making policy about, uh, you know, your local garden center at the EU level essentially, or about, you know, the streets in your town or something like that, that decisions like the, that affect people on a really local level should be made at the local level. And then there should be some decisions made at a, uh, like a national level and then some made at an EU level. Um, so yeah, when we start with, um, what, like to, to what extent you think that you have really ad- adhered to, to subsidiarity? Hmm, okay. So yeah, so you, that, your definition of subsidiarity there is, I think, correct. Um, my understanding is that, um, and I'm, I'm not a, a political historian, but my understanding is that it, it originally it originated in, in, in Catholic canon law, um, and certainly it's a concept that seems to be more widely understood in, in for example, Germany. Um, but yeah, it's the idea that the decisions. Um, should be taken at the level as close to the citizen as possible or as, as reasonable. Um, and uh, as you say, you know, planning um, the calendar for um, you know, waste collection, those sort of things, you take at a very local level. Um, foreign policy, um, trade policy, these, it makes sense to take these decisions at the, the highest level that there is um, mm. and, and so on in between. Um, and, that's the notion of, of subsidiarity, and it, it first um, it wasn't there right at the beginning of the EU, um, but as the EU became progressively, and I, I use the term EU interchangeably with the European communities, of course, um, as as the EU became more politically integrated, and, and, and as its ambition increased, so um, I think it, it became more important to flesh out these notions. And so it was, I think it was the single European act in, in, the, in the eighties that first introduced the, the notion of subsidiarity into the treaties, um, but only in specific policy areas. And it was only with the Maastricht treaty that you first had a general application of the, uh, the principle of subsidiarity. And now um, you've got, um, you've got it right there in the treaty in article five of the treaty. In fact, if you give me a second, I'm just going to pull up my, my laptop and, and I can read you the bit of the treaty where it is. Yeah, so in, um, in uh, here we go. In Article 5, um, Paragraph 3 of the, of, of the treaty um, of the Lisbon, of the, of the co- consolidated treaties after Lisbon, you've got um, under the principle of subsidiarity in areas which do not fall within its exclusive competence, the union shall act only if and insofar as the objectives of the proposed action cannot be sufficiently achieved by the member states, either at central level or at regional and local level. Um, so what, what that's saying is that it's decisions should be taken at the level closest to the citizen, be that local or regional or central in member states, but it's the member states that should decide on that. Uh, and the way this works in practice is that national parliaments, under the Treaty of Lisbon, national parliaments are, are um, empowered to scrutinise EU legislation and flag if they think that the principle of subsidiarity has been breached. And that has happened. That's happened uh, three times, I think, um, so far, where member states, a majority of member state parliaments have said, no, this breaches the principle of subsidiarity, so we don't think we should be proceeding. And and the Commission has pulled back uh, proposals, even where it doesn't agree. Um, So it does, yeah, it is applied. It's in there. It's in law, and it works. It it has been applied. Um, uh, my my difficulty with it is that it leaves it again. It leaves it to the member states to decide, um, national parliaments and member states to decide at what level subsidiarity should then be applied below the the European tier. So um, that's not. Then then we come to the notion of federalism. I mean, that's not what I understand by by federalism. So federalism for me is about tiers of government. So federalism is, is, if you like, the expression of subsidiarity in, 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 in politics. You, you, you have decisions that are taken by the appropriate tier of government, be that local, regional, national, or European. Um, and um, 
you mentioned the US, which of, which of course is a is a federal is a federal republic, and, um, and and but I mean I can think of other examples that might actually be, be even better. So you've got, for example, Canada, um, which I know well because I, I was posted out there as a diplomat. Um, but you've also got Belgium or Germany um, or and some other EU member states where federalism is um, is uh, very well established. I mean, in Belgium, you have the the, the you've had a, a number of recent reforms um, which have um, tweaked the, 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 the federal state in a way that, you know, if anybody that knew Belgium in the early 90s and in the 80s and the early 90s will will tell you that, 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 that there's just been a, an enormous change in the country in terms of its prosperity, in terms of the, its good functioning since the latest um, change to its federal structure. Um, and if you like, the ultimate test of that is that Belgium, I think, has the record for the length of time that, that, that it's taken. It's gone without having a national government. I mean, they, they, they've had national elections and they've taken literally years to form a coalition government at the national level. And it hasn't led to the collapse of the Belgian state precisely because um, the Belgians, in a way, in the Belgian situation, the, the national level is almost irrelevant um, or redundant is the, is, is the proper word there because you've got this very um you've got these powers at federal and regional level that function extremely well um in terms of delivering good governance and then you've got the european tier of government that and there's not that much left in the middle for the national government to take care of and national governments do not like that <laughs> and this is what i mean when we talk about um uh, the imbalance of, of the institutions in, 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 in the, with the council, which is the national, which are national governments. You've got the council um, where um, under, under the way that the treaty currently works, I mean, it would have to be the council that, that would decide to reform the EU in, mm. in, in, in a more federal direction. And they're not going to do that because <laughs> effectively they'd be signing their own death warrant. It's a bit like the UK. You're never going to get where the Westminster Parliament um, agreeing to move from first past the post to proportional representation or, or to a more devolved federal structure because it, it, it would effectively take away their entire raison d'etre. So I mean, we, can, we can talk about that a bit more. But so, you know, federalism for me is about um setting in stone how decisions are taken uh, how subsidiarity works in a practical level how does how rules are made at the local regional national and european level draw breath so there you go that's my pitch <laughs> <laughs> so uh one thing i would like to know is that guinness um very unfairly uh did not give northern ireland the world record for the longest period without a government we had um about a thousand days <laughs> with no government um but they they refused to, to to say that we had the record they wanted to keep it with belgium um, I'm not sure why. Perhaps that was uh, Guinness themselves saying, you know, the north of Ireland shouldn't have a record for anything that wasn't, you know, shooting at each other. But <laughs> so like, like one of the criticisms that, that was um, very prevalent in the, the EU debate uh, over Brexit was that the EU was, I don't want to say fundamentally undemocratic, but that the idea that the that, that power was was so far from the the place of uh, so far from the voter in in so many cases that people people didn't vote for their eu um member of european parliament they they felt disconnected from this parliament that's um across the sea like miles away from from where they're making the from where they're were placing the vote and where like, real life for them is is going on and and to me it seems like there's there's the a federal a federalist EU would maybe even exacerbate the, those those critiques or or problems um, because you would have a a more solidified executive at a European level. But you know, maybe maybe you know, do, what do you make of those those criticisms? No, I, I mean, I don't think misguided? you would. I don't think you would. I mean, you, the executive is the executive, and I mean, you have an executive at the EU level. Um, it, 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 a federal, um, uh, a stronger federal structure would. Um, would enhance the links between um, each of those levels and the citizen. 
Uh, and what you, my personal view is that the, the problem that you have in the EU at the moment, the reason that people feel so um, distant from, from Brussels decision-making structures is because you've got this intervening layer of national government that acts as a kind of firewall and a filter. And that needs to be broken down for me. And, and it is broken down in many EU states. In many EU states, you don't have those kind of um, barriers. So, you know, um, as, as, as an EU civil servant, you know, I see citizens. I see, you know, I'm, my number's in the phone book. You can look me up. That's not true for Whitehall civil servants. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, citizens can write, write to commissioners because citizens write to their M- MEPs, MEPs, come and see us. I mean, there, there is direct, direct interaction between um, the institutions and the citizens. Um, that's generally not been true with, with, with British citizens for some reason. Um, and I think that there's a more than a podcast, there's sort of books to be written about that and have been written about that. Yeah. But um, I think that in, in the past, the, the Whitehall and Westminster jealously guarded that, that, that role. And I think it goes to, it's not just about Brussels, it goes to the heart of Westminster exceptionalism and, and, and if it's exactly the same when you look at questions of, of, of UK devolution. Now, why um, a citizen sitting in, um, I don't know, Stranraer or, um, or, or, you know, Hollywood or, or, or you know, um, uh, in, in Northern Ireland or in Scotland um, should feel more represented by somebody sitting in Westminster than they do by somebody sitting in Strasbourg or Brussels. I don't know because there doesn't seem to me to be an enormous amount of difference, except that in the British system, um, while you do have nominally devolved government and you have nominally regional government or local government, you've also got this, to me, utterly iniquitous and sinful um, constituency MP system where uh, MPs at the, in the national government, because they have this sort of regional role, seem to take it upon themselves to have also this sort of regional or uh, this local governmental status and role. And people, um, national MPs should be dealing with national issues. So we, we come to, for example, the West Lothian question, which is something that's always really yanked my chain. The, the, the argument is that um, why should um, MPs in Scotland um, get a vote in Westminster on issues that are purely related to England? What, because MPs in England don't get a vote on issues that are purely about Scotland because that's done in the Scottish Parliament. To which I say, yeah, I know. <laughs> we need an English devolved parliament. Or we need regional devolved parliaments. You need uh, a much more um, structured and systematic way of devolving power in the United Kingdom. And instead you get this crazy system where you get the national tier uh, weighing in on, on regional and local issues where they shouldn't be. And the reason they do that is because there's some sort of mystique about Westminster as being somehow more valid, more important, more valuable than any other tier of government, whether it's Brussels or, or Holyrood or, 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 or the Senate or, or, or Stormont or anything. You know, it, 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 that to me is a breakdown of our um, uh, our political culture, and that you don't see that in, 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 in successful federal states. So if you look at Canada, or you look at Germany, um, people there uh, have a, a strong sense of connection to their regional governments as well as to their national governments. And they, they get it. It's not difficult. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing particular. There's not, there's not a problem with UK citizens, which means that they can't understand these concepts. They're not concepts that are difficult. Um, it's, it's, it's about our traditions and about what we're used to. But I mean, other countries have been used to things too and, and, and unlearn them. So there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to live in a federal system. The, 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 key, th- the key thing here above all, um, if I may say, is money, is control of, of money. So if, if you look at Canada, for example, um, in Canada, you pay income tax to the province and you pay income tax to the, the federal state. Mm-hmm. And it's roughly about half and half. So about half, you know, so provinces have res- re- revenue raising um, powers and, and have um, their own budgets and treasuries. And so does the federal government. In Britain, um, local authorities are entirely reliant upon national government for, for their money. In Scotland, it's, it's somewhat different. But um, if you look at Brussels, Brussels has revenue-raising capacity. It has its own resources. But it's 
minute compared to the national tier. And a lot of its money does come from the national tier. If you want meaningful devolution, if you want meaningful federalism, what you need to do is you need to give each tier of government its own resources, its own financial resources. And that breaks that, to me, um, toxic link um, or toxic hold that the national tier has over, over the citizen. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know where I started on that rant, but... Um, <laughs> That's all right. Um, and I definitely think you're you're right. There's this weird aberration where we seem to believe that um, the the MPs seem to like spend like a ridiculous amount of time on constituency work. And um, I was reading this great book this year, uh, "Why We Get the Wrong Politicians" um, by Elizabeth Harding, I think her name is. Anyway, apologies if I've got that wrong. If you're listening, <laughs> but. Uh, one of the points she was making is that MPs spend so much time dealing with like local issues that, that really have nothing to do with what they're doing at Westminster, that they have so little, so much less time to then actually deal with like what's going on and like the legislating they need to be doing at a, at a national level. But I'm curious as to, to if you think that the reason that we would hold Westminster as like the par above all else um, because of the the way that our elections are split up. So, uh, for example, in in America uh, is the, the the one the only one that I can really like speak to effectively about their voting systems and whatnot. Just because that's the the one I'm I'm best versed in outside of the UK. But they they have okay, they have the midterms, but then like the, you have like election day, voting day every four years. Um, or every two years in terms of the house and, um, and the midterms and but like that's for us in the uk we have like the the westminster elections and that's the be all and end all that's the 30 days of perda and you've got the election rules and you just have every single thing in the entire world geared towards or everything in the media and our, our lives is just westminster elections westminster elections westminster elections you get z- almost zero percent of that when we're when we talk about like council elections or European elections. So like going like above and below like the, the, the power structures there. Do you think that's, that's, that's kind of contributory to the, the, the way that we see Westminster as like the, the, the be all and end all? I mean, do you think it would be different if we say elected, we had all our, our elections on the same day? I don't think it's an issue of timing. I mean, without a doubt, you're right. Um, I don't necessarily think it's an issue of timing. I think it's an issue of um, it, it, there is no simple answer to this. The, the reality is that in, in, in Britain, especially in England, I, I can't speak for Northern Ireland or Scotland, but I mean, especially, especially in England, um, every election is a proxy for the national election. So whether you're voting in a European election, a local election, or a, or a general election, you're voting for, uh, for. You're essentially telling the government in Westminster what you think of them. Mm. Um, it, it's broken at every level. That the, the Westminster elections are broken because very few of us have meaningful votes at all, given the first past the post system. But then local elections and the European elections in the UK are broken too. The European elections are, were at least done by PR but they were not treated as serious elections by the electorate. So you can ask yourself why. And I mean, there's, you know, that, that, that's a question that would take uh, every podcast uh, under the sun to answer. But the reality is that the link between the election, the elector, the, the voter, and what they're voting for is broken. So how do you fix that? I mean, it's, it's sort of chicken and egg. It's, it's in the way in which our, 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 our our press work, our media works, and the way it's also centralised and Westminster focused, in the way which we don't have proper local um, reporting, local media, and, and the way that other countries do. It's in it's to do with the money issue that I was talking about, about the fact that um, uh, local politicians can't make serious promises uh, or, or, or build serious manifestos because they don't have the power to enact them, because they don't have the money to enact them. So... Um, at what point do you break this um, vicious, vicious circle? Um, I don't know, but it needs to be broken. You need to have a better link between um, people, citizens, and their local represent- representatives. I mean, when I look at other countries, again, um, 
you know, when I look at Canada, for example, I see the connection that local people have between um, that the, 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 they feel this connection to all sorts of different tiers of local government. It's the same in the states. You know, you vote for your um, local um, uh, school board, your local libraries, your, your local um, police, um, uh, and. And these have meaningful consequences and people are engaged and people stand for election and, and, and many more people are directly engaged in politics. And there isn't this stigma attached to local politics. Um, it is seen as being of importance and value in its own right. Um, and also as a, as a stepping stone to a career in politics at a different level, maybe at the regional level or the city level or the national level or European level. So... All of that's broken in the, in, in, uh, uh, the English system, but, but also the British system. So how to fix that, I don't know, but it certainly needs to be fixed. Hmm. I mean, in, in America, there's definitely, but they have, they have your, you've got your like state legislature, your, your, sorry, your state legislature, you've got the, so you've got like normally, and normally I think in, in every state you have uh, like a, a house of representatives and a Senate, and then you have your mayor, <laughs> And you have the state governor, and then you have like your representatives for the state go into Congress in Washington and the and the the Senate. So you like perhaps they're just more versed in the the idea that you vote in for lots of different levels of government, and that that matters. I mean, what I can say in Northern Ireland is that we we definitely have um, like quite a connection to what's going on at Stormont, um, even when it wasn't happening. Everyone is very well versed in the parties, in the politics, in the the policies that are getting passed, and where it's perhaps like England really is lacking that because Westminster acts as acts as both. Um, so, if you were to try and federalize the UK, then say you had like a just a blank slate, or 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 maybe you want to be realistic about it, whichever way you want to give the answer. But how would that look, and, and why do you think that would help renew that? that sense of democracy or that sense of like connection to democracy that, that seems to have gone a little bit missing in, in politics in Britain. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'd start with the money. I think, I think it all follow all, it all flows from the money. I think you start by um, giving um, local uh, and regional authorities their own budgets and their own revenue raising capacities and delinking, decoupling it from Westminster. So you take away Westminster's stranglehold on local and regional government. And to, to an extent, that's happened in Scotland, and you can see the, the, the results of that. It needs to go further. But in England, we're not there at all. Um, quite the opposite. You, you, you're seeing, you know, there, there's this lip service paid to devolution. But without devolution of finances, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. So that's where you start, to me. Um, and... Um, you then also you need to have um, a codified for me I think you need to have a codified constitution you need to have a codified basic law that sets out what is done um, at which level and that sort of breaks the, the, the again the magic hold that Westminster has over over UK politics um, you also do symbolic things you you, you, you establish regional um, assemblies um, how many would you have take, for England, for example? Like, would well, you just I mean, have an English that's a detail, one? Or? No, I, well, not, I don't know. I, I think that um, it's, that's a detail that I don't have a strong view on. I think probably not. You probably have regional assemblies, not just an English one. Um, but um, you, um, you also do symbolic things, like you, you, you take um, Parliament, the, the Westminster Parliament, out of the Palace of Westminster, and you put it in a new modern building and you give it a hemicycle instead of this oppositional sort of confrontational thing. And symbolic things like that would just, I think that would be transformative actually. But of course that's the sort of, that's the, that's where your small C conservatives would recoil in horror because what are you doing to a mother of parliaments? Well, I mean, that's why you do it because you need to break this awful um, obsession that we have with the past and this sort of myth, myth, mythologizing that we have about our democracy which is dysfunctional, it's deeply dysfunctional. Most of us don't have a, a, a vote. Most of us 
simply don't have a vote on people who govern us. Mm. So there you go. That's my pitch. <laughs> I mean, perhaps, perhaps Theresa May's gifting of uh, a billion pounds to Northern Ireland was uh, a nice little way of, of starting that, that process. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, while it's, as long as it's a gift... It, it doesn't mean anything. That's the point. It's, it's no. a bribe. I mean, you, it, well, they, what, they, what, what you need is you need to be, you need to be um, free of the patronage of Westminster. Mm. If Westminster can buy you off with a bung of a billion, of a billion quid, you're not free. You're not, you're not, it's not meaningful power. If you can raise it yourselves, then it's meaningful. You know? mm. And the same is true at the European level. While the, while the EU budget... Okay, we have our own resources, but neg- it's tiny compared to the kind of resources that a national government has. Mm. But also, the EU can't run a deficit. You can't borrow and pay back. You have, to, you have to spend all the money that you get every year, or it goes back to the member states. Again, that, that, is, 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 um, that hobbles the, the, the EU as a meaningful tier of government. So I do think it all sort of goes back to the money, yeah. ultimately. I think that's where well, you really need to sort of make meaningful changes. Yeah, well, I mean, follow, follow the money. That was something I, I, I was, uh, I lived in Canada for a year and I found um, when I went to fill out my taxes, that was, that was, that was a, a job that was like two days of me like tearing my hair out. But then I got halfway through and realized that, hang on, this was only the state taxes I was filling out and I had, I had to do the federal ones as well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are downsides, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 there's one thing is that uh, that I've been become perhaps hope like hopelessly optimistic about is that COVID and this entire sort of exercise in in watching Parliament and governments deal with a serious crisis to the in the way that like we've never seen in our lifetime um, might give us some sort of impetus to consider reforming like what's what's going on but and also actually to to speak to your point about people like clinging to the past uh, i think that um there's a great book uh, that that i'm i'm still about halfway through it's called why nations fail and um they are they were the the chapter i've just finished is sort of detailing why britain emerged as one of the first like democracies um, or at least like the first parliament with any power and then why we were the first country to undergo the industrial revolution and and reading it you actually get like a real sense of like wow these these people who were who were working back then in parliament and like whilst it was not a democracy that they were pushing things that were considered like like really out there at the time and things that you just didn't see like just just like democratizing um, the, the economic and political sphere. In, and it, it makes you, you realize the extent to which our current crop of politicians, while they love to kind of fantasize and romanticize about, about Britain having been that first nation to be democratic and, you know, we, we were the ones leading the world in, in everything, that, that we've lost that, that ability to break the mold essentially into like that our our previous successes mean that we like cling to them instead of looking to move forward with like move forward and and, and sort of engage in a little bit of 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 creative destruction to to revolutionize our our democracy yeah um you're right i, I you know what we're missing um we're missing radicalism and 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 i mean i wouldn't say it's, it's an exclusively British thing in terms of what led to um, modern liberal democracy. I mean, it, I had a oh, discussion no, just, about this on, on the podcast of, recently. With I was just going to yeah, say, it was but, just but, sort um, of detailing like Britain's like Britain as an example of moving towards yeah, like, a more democratized yeah. system. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think I think what you're on, you're on, you're on to an important point here, which is that when you do look at other countries that function that function very well or um, uh, have modern. Um, democratic systems of government that, that are functioning well and can be seen to function well, often that has arisen out of complete chaos or carnage or, you know, destruction. So you've got the German um, state, which um, with, with, with its modern federal constitution, which is knocking it out of the park in all sorts of areas. Now that, you know, we know where that came from, you know, God forbid we should have to go through something like that to be able to get a modern democracy. And we, you know, we haven't had that kind of, um, 
uh, uh, cleansing fire, if you like, in, 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 in British politics, and, which is why we are not fit for, per, you know, match fit for the 21st century. And, you know, to be honest, um, I don't think COVID's going to deliver the, 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 the hit that we need, but in combination with a few other things, maybe it will. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why I personally am, I'm, I'm a, a strong advocate as, 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 as an Englishman and a European, I'm a strong advocate of, of Scottish independence. I, I think that that would be a very good thing for Scotland, but also for the rest of the UK. Um, why? Because I think, you know, this, this Scottish brand of, of civic nationalism, which is inclusive and, and, and liberal and, 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 and sees itself as part of a wider European mainstream, I think that's actually perfectly healthy and, and, and quite opposed to the kind of ethno-nationalism that we, that we see in other places. So I think it would be a good thing for Scotland. You know, Scotland as an independent um, member state of the EU uh, would be like Ireland or Denmark, and I could see it doing extremely well. But not only that, the, the, the kind of shock that that would deliver to the United Kingdom um, might be what we need um, to reform. Because, I mean, it will, we would need some kind of serious kick up the arse to reform along the lines that I'm, I'm advocating. Otherwise, I just don't see it happening. Um, in which case, you know, you, you just, you go further into decline and decay until ultimately you do get the kind of awful shock. That, so, you know, um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think there is the potential for some far-reaching event that, that, would, that would be the trigger for these changes. But, um, you know, it's one of those cases of be careful what you wish for. Um, you'd want it to happen in a, in a manageable way. Yeah. Well, there you go. You've just given yourself away as a Britain, a Britain hating European. Uh, like. <laughs> I'm really not. I, it really comes. I think the patriots are the people. You know, what is patriotism ultimately? Is it, is it attachment to institutions and to, to, to symbols? I don't really, it really isn't. It's about wanting the best for your fellow citizens. And I genuinely, you know, I'm somebody who has spent a lot of time you know, living in other countries and seeing how things are done elsewhere. And I do not believe that we are living the best lives that we could be living in the UK, so in England here, you know, looking out of my window here in prosperous um, home counties. We are not living our best lives. Mm. Um, when you look, let's take the example of America. You know, I've been, we've all been following what's been going on in the States a lot over the last couple of weeks for obvious reasons. But one of the things that constantly shocks me is the way in which on all sides of the American debate, you hear them saying that it's a straight choice between lockdown and economic uh, prosperity. And people saying, if we lock down, people are going to go hungry. If we lock down, people will lose their jobs. Because there's no meaningful or serious discussion about government intervention to help those people. So you get... Um, you get people saying, well, we don't want to do what they've done in Germany, what Merkel has done or what Johnson's done in the UK and, and, and lock us all down and go into sort of economic decline. And you're thinking, are you looking at the same, look at what's happening in Germany. They're, you know, people are getting, I don't know the precise figures, but they're getting, you know, we're, we're talking about 80% of salaries or something covered. And, and, you know, okay, this costs money. The money comes from a prosperous state. It comes from having you know, high tax revenues. And, um, and you get high tax revenues because you've got successful businesses. Um, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a virtuous circle. Mm. If, 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 you're, if you've simply got um, you know, billionaires taking private planes to go and sit in New Zealand, uh, meanwhile, while the rest of the country loses their jobs and gets COVID and dies, well, that's not going to help the country in the long run, is it? So... Um, I, I just wish that that's America, but we have a similar problem here in the UK, which is that I think people just fail. They lack the imagination to look and see how things are being done in similar countries. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier about, I wish that we would just simply grow up and face reality in the 21st century as a second, you know, as a decent second rate country. We don't have to be bloody global leaders, you know, and the, the way to be global leaders, in fact, simply means that we live worse lives than we should than we should be or could be otherwise 
I mean, I guess I feel like we probably have like an inflated sense of our place in the world uh, because, but yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, but I don't think I don't think it's for the same reason that, that that a lot of people would say. I don't think like obviously we have this kind of idea is kind of similar to the American exceptionalism is the British exceptionalism is like we're different. We led the world. Uh, we were ruled like two thirds of the globe. I don't think I honestly don't think that that's it. Because if you, if you, t- I think honestly, the thing that, that inflates our egos more than anything as a country is when you look at where we are economically, like in terms of GDP for the, re- like compared to the rest of the world, we're sitting fifth or sixth, it kind of switches around between us and France. Um, and I'm not sure what the, what the exact position is right now. But I think the thing that inflates our, our personal like importance there is that we, the, the, so much of that GDP and so much of that 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 capital and money that that can, like contributes to that figure is based around finance and the city of London, and that just massively like blows out our sense of where we are in the world. Because if the the, the money in say Germany or France is like they may have similar sized economies, but like the the, the GDP like the general like wealth of the average person is is so much higher than in the uk like the 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 money is concentrated in such like a a small group of people i mean i say group it's like there's there's it's it's more than just like 20 people in a room but but you get my point and i think that that kind of like like gives us this sense that we we that we have done we're still doing really well compared to the rest of the world that we're sitting like we're one of the best in the world because we've got such a high gdp and it's always talked about in terms of like britain's economic success success but the, the levels of inequality kind of like speak to something completely different and I, I honestly think that's where some of that that inflated sense of ourselves has come from absolutely you're absolutely right and you look at you know there, there, there are maps that you can look up online which um, show um, the richest parts of Europe and the poorest parts of Europe broken down by region and what they call the nuts three region which is the sort of <laughs> The third category of of, of, of regional um, delineation in, in Europe, and you, and I think it's nine out of the ten poorest regions in Northern Europe are in the UK, mm. um, which is and a, two, and two of the richest. scandal. It's a disgrace when you, you know when we, we when we think about how rich we are as a country on paper, and the, 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 what what hurts me the most is that the people in those poorest regions don't seem to get it. Mm. You know, they're the people who, who, they're the people in the red wall who went and voted Tory last time around, or they're the people who voted Leave because they thought that the EU was making them poorer. And they are the poorest people in Europe, or certainly in Northern Europe. And that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be when you look at what our GDP is, and that, it shouldn't be. And this is, this is the, this is what gr- really grinds my chains, you know grinds my gears we ought to be telling people that it can be better than this and showing them examples look look at look at the person doing your job in belgium in flanders look at the person doing your job in 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 the rhineland look at what look what they can do okay they're paying they're paying more tax than you are but they can afford it because they're earning so much more than you and they've got much more holiday time and they've got much better facilities they've got much better education all of these things i mean they have a higher quality of life but all you can focus on is is symbols or or is your tax bill or you know you're not looking at it holistically you're not looking and when our press make the comparison they generally make the comparison with what people are doing in australia or or, or in america She's so short-sighted. So we are also cursed, of course, by, by our language. I mean, that's, that's our whole other issue. <sighs> well, yeah, yeah I, I know you anyway, Chris. I know you're, uh, you're a busy guy. Um, so just uh, to wrap up, is there anything you'd like yeah. to, to finish with or, or plug or anything? Well, look, um, if, um, if, if anybody's coming to this, um, you don't know me. I mean, I love a follow on Twitter where I'm called Autocrat, O double T O C R A T, Autocrat. Uh, give me a follow on Twitter and um, have a look at my uh, my blog, which is um, also Autocrat, but with a dot between the R and the A T, so Autocrat.at. 
Um, and then um, listen to the podcast, which I do with uh, my friend Steve Bullock. Uh, it's called Cake Watch. You can find it on Apple or anywhere else. Just Cake Watch. Spell it the way that it sounds. Um, as I say, we're not very, um, we're, we're not being particularly productive at the moment. Um, and we may not be particularly productive in the future, but there's a whole excellent back catalogue there for you to listen to if, you, if, if, if what I've been saying here strikes a chord at all. Hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it's, um, I'm just, uh, I've been very much enjoyed being given a platform to rant at you. At you. So thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much indeed, Josh. I appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem, man. It's, a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.